has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Imagine having a throbbing headache for three days, or severe back pain that immobilizes you, or even a broken bone from tripping and falling on the ice. Where do you go for relief? Most of the time, we go to the emergency room. As a matter of fact, at least 50% of the time, pain is the reason for emergency room visits. In 1989, there was a lot written about poor pain care in the ER. Patients complain about delays in getting needed analgesics and infrequent pain assessment. What about today, though? Have we made any progress? Are we using more than opioids to manage pain, especially given the opioid epidemic? Well, we have two guests who will not only answer these questions, but share some innovative approaches for pain relief in the emergency room. Our first guest, Dr. Travis Stork, is the host of the award-winning talk show, The Doctors. He's a New York Times bestselling author and an experienced ER physician. Our second guest is Dr. Drew Fuller. He's also an emergency physician and former chair for the American College of Emergency Physicians section on quality improvement and patient safety. Aches and Gains is supported by Boston Scientific and the Pain Community. For cutting-edge treatments and ways to manage pain, please sign up for weekly emails at paulchristomd.com. One of Dr. Stork's passions is teaching people simple methods of preventing illness before it occurs. Let's get his impression of the status of pain care in the ER. Dr. Stork, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. First, tell us how your show, The Doctors, is going. Well, the, the show is going great. I feel like with our show being in, in its 10th season, we've gone through the medical school phase, we've gone through the residency phase, and now we're in the more attending physician phase. So we've really been able to take our viewers through a journey, whereas in season one, we might be teaching them what diabetes is and how insulin and all of it interplays, you know, but now we're really at the point where it's, okay, action-oriented. And so mm-hmm. a lot of what we're talking about, ironically, this year, it coincides with, with your show, which is with the opiate epidemic and really focusing on how we can live our best life, live a pain-free life, you, you know, and certainly we also have a, a series called the United States of Obesity, where we're focusing on the toll of obesity on our country and things that you can really do on your own outside of the healthcare system to improve your health, which has been just a really big focus of our show. Mm-hmm. Good for you. And those are two critical major healthcare problems in the United States. That is the opioid epidemic and obesity. And by the way, obesity does lead to pain and chronic pain at that. Uh, Travis, pain is often the major reason for ER visits. I mean, at least half of them. What are some of the more frequent pain conditions that you see in the ER? Things like abdominal pain and chest pain. And those are such common reasons. And 
when people come to the ER, they don't know necessarily whether something's serious, right. not serious. They just know that they're uncomfortable. Exactly. People don't realize this, but a lot of times people will present with abdominal pain. You got to run through the differential of everything from, is this a surgical abdomen? Do they need, do they have an appendicitis? Do they have something more serious going on? Or is this just constipation? <laughs> <laughs> and it's really neat how so many now of, of the modalities that we tend to use outside of the hospital can, believe it or not, even be effective when someone comes to the ER and we send them home. And instead of just writing a prescription, a lot of times we can give them lifestyle steps as well. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you're providing patients with other health interventions aside from pills. And now, Travis, much of the pain that you treat in the ER is acute, like a sickle cell crisis, bone fracture, a kidney stone, for example. But have you seen a growing number of patients with chronic pain in need of relief? Oh, without question. Not to bring my own life story into this, but as I reached my 40s, about two and a half, three years ago, I started to develop nerve pain going down my arm and weakness and numbness and mm -hmm. I essentially spent two and a half plus years dealing with this nerve impingement wow. in my neck. And until that time, I didn't fully understand what that term chronic pain really means. Mm -hmm. but, but now I do. Because every single day of my life, every single decision I made was based on trying to stay out of pain. Uh-huh. And I hear that every day from patients that I see in chronic pain. It completely consumes them. Dr. Stork, you mentioned earlier the opioid epidemic. That is overdoses that we're seeing that are leading to death. How has the opioid crisis affected the types of patients seen in the emergency room? You're seeing an incredible rise in the number of patients either seeking opiates, but also overdoses. Unfortunately, that, that tide has not turned yet. And so I'm, I'm honestly not surprised we are where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. I do think that there's a, a much better understanding now of the trials and tribulations that people are going through who are potentially addicted to opiates, but also the, the way that these overdoses are happening nowadays and, and how often street drugs are laced with maybe stronger opiates than people think they're taking. I think that's the, the biggest change is just the unpredictability of it all. Mm -hmm. Unpredictable and deadly, unfortunately. I've seen a rough guide saying that pain should be addressed within 20 to 25 minutes of initial ER provider evaluation. I mean, Travis, is that really happening today? You can show up in an ER and be in acute pain and there's always a chance you may not get seen for three or four hours. Mm-hmm particularly during the, this time of year where there's also the flu epidemic. Right. But I think in any overloaded system like, like our healthcare system, it, trying your best does not always mean that people are getting treated in that, that time frame you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Very true. Severe pain can make it tough to get a history and perform a physical exam, yet it seems like ER doctors and other members of the ER team are reluctant to provide analgesics until the history and physical examination are finished. Is that due to the fear of masking any important signs or symptoms of illness? If someone comes in and you fear they have appendicitis, initially a lot of teachers would say don't ever give them pain medicine because it'll affect your physical exam but then of course mm -hmm. better data showed that you know treating pain does not necessarily affect your ability to diagnose and treat so i still think it's very operator dependent yeah i do also think you know that there's without taking a proper history and physical doctors are always going to err on the side of not over treating especially 
and and this is something I learned very early on in my career. I could not believe the disparity in the doses that would either give you a good pain control response mm-hmm. versus cause someone to stop breathing. Yeah. I'll tell you, there's there's a reason why you have your show aches and gains because it's it's something that we have not figured out. Exactly. And we've showcased a lot of patients who have figured it out using often a customized approach that incorporates multiple different strategies for pain relief. And they don't necessarily involve opioids. Now, Travis, now that compensation is related to patient satisfaction and pain relief, has it put ER doctors in a bind? And what I mean is, it seems like doctors are trying to relieve pain and also trying to avoid supplying opioids to abusers. Patient satisfaction is very important, but certainly a lot of ER doctors are worried that if someone comes in and they're seeking a specific prescription and if they don't give it and they give a one-star review, that's probably suboptimal. Mm-hmm. I think most good ER doctors and most doctors in general are going to do what's best for the patient, regardless of what patient satisfaction scores may or may not be. I think I would actually use the reverse argument that if you go online and, and you're searching for a doctor and they may have all five-star reviews, and that could be because that doctor prescribes anything you want them to prescribe, whether it be a pain medication, an antibiotic, it doesn't always translate to their quality as a practitioner. And I think that's something that that I try to educate the viewers of the doctors, which is sometimes your best doctor is going to be the one who says, you know what, hold on here real quick. Instead of just writing you a prescription, let's talk about other treatments. Let's talk about other modalities. And Mm -hmm. I think teaching young doctors to not worry so much about okay, what, what's your review going to be? And worry more about what's going to help this patient be better over the long term. I think once we get to that point, we're all going to be better off. I agree. I think the focus should be on what's best for the patient, not what's best for the review. Is there a tiered approach to the type of pain medicines that you provide in the emergency room? That is, you start with Tylenol, known as acetaminophen, then progress to NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil, and then finally, if pain becomes very severe, use opioids. For certain types of pain, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory is just as effective, if not more effective, than an opiate. Mm-hmm. And I think you're doing a disservice to the patient if you just jump straight to opiates, which obviously have their addictive qualities. And I think um, educating the public to understand that is an important piece in this. It is important. And outside the context of the emergency room, for patients who have chronic pain, we use non-opioid medications, interventions like injection therapies, and even implantable devices for pain relief, as well as integrative therapies. And finally, what does the future hold for pain control in the emergency room? I've become very much a complementary practitioner of medicine in my mind, and I hope that there comes a day where you're in the emergency department and you're suffering with low back pain. And we can say, you know what? Opiates aren't going to do you any good. There's, but but here's some, some great modalities that may help. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, here is um, our acupuncturist who is going to be coming in here in five minutes to do a treatment on you to see if there's any benefit. You know, we actually also have a massage therapist on staff. <laughs> you know, that in my ideal world, uh-huh. we would be able to treat pain in ER setting that does include all these different modalities that go beyond just a pill. That would be terrific. Dr. Stork, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a great one. Don't go away. 
Up next is Dr. Drew Fuller, emergency physician and former chair for the American College of Emergency Physicians section on quality improvement and patient safety. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by The Pain Community, a web-based nonprofit created by people living with pain. Check out paincommunity.org for information, references, advocacy tools, and a premium section to securely interact with other members in forums and chat rooms. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter at Dr. Paul Christo and like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. In addition to his role as Chief Safety Officer to Altion Health, Dr. Fuller is leading initiatives to strengthen opioid safety for hospitals in the United States. Dr. Fuller, welcome to Aches and Gains. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. I talked to our previous guest, Dr. Stork, about the opioid epidemic and how the opioid overdoses are affecting the emergency room. What have you seen? It's a number of patients that we see um, in your standard emergency department, whether it's an inner city academic or community practice. And it may be patients with chronic pain that have run into difficulty and need help with their chronic pain or acute exacerbations of their chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Maybe patients with opioid addiction that may be coming to the emergency departments um, seeking opioid medications for their ailments. And it may be um, patients who have acute pain needs who legitimately need opioids or other therapies. I think over time, it seems that pain relief has been more of a focus of emergency care than in the past. And it also sounds like there's a greater effort to customize pain treatments for a given pain condition without the use of opioids. Exactly. And I I can give you an example. Migraine headaches can be an extremely painful condition. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're new for the patient, but sometimes patients have experience of migraines and their home therapies aren't working and they'll come to an emergency department. In the past, the clinicians may have gone right towards narcotics, whether it's dilaudid or morphine or fentanyl. Mm-hmm. But now we know that other therapies such as Reglan and Compassine or steroids or magnesium or even IV lidocaine that do a fantastic job of improving migraine headaches. And I almost never have to give an opioid medication for a migraine now because of all these very good um, alternatives that not only alleviate pain, but completely relieve the migraine headache in the majority of my patients. Great point. I'm glad you mentioned alternatives to opioids for pain therapy. Uh, Listen, there are a lot of things that happen in the ER that add to a patient's pain. That is, IV placement, sometimes puncture of arteries for monitoring purposes, placement of tubes in the stomach or the bladder. What's used to dampen the pain associated with these procedures? Fantastic question. And let's start with even the simplest. Even putting an IV in a child can be very painful. So applying topical agents to decrease the pain from an IV, using lidocaine jelly for placements of Foley catheters. And even when we're very early on this, but we'd like to get more emergency departments on board, the use of nitrous oxide for procedural sedation or painful procedures. I'm glad you mentioned nitrous oxide because I think that's up and coming. It's surprising, but possibly useful in terms of a method of controlling pain in the ER. Nitrous oxide is also known as laughing gas. We use it all the time in anesthesiology. It's inhaled, the onset is rapid, and it's a very short-acting pain reliever. I haven't seen it used in the ER yet, but it sounds like you're familiar with it. Well, not as familiar as we'd like to be. It's starting to grow in some pediatric emergency departments, Mm -hmm. but some emergency um, ambulance units are starting to use it in the U.S., and it's very common in places like Australia. And it's a very safe therapy. It is very safe. What kinds of patients are candidates? Because I'm thinking that 
those who've had burns or even bites from venomous animals might be good candidates for nitrous oxide. Exactly, exactly. Like a joint dislocation or a fracture that needs to be reduced. Mm -hmm. And even if we start them on nitrous oxide until we can get an articular block or a nerve block done to do the reduction, the nitrous oxide would be a good pathway. I think so. It avoids the need for an IV and it has low risk of side effects, a rapid onset and offset of analgesia, and lasts for about three to five minutes. I think it would be terrific. Now, Drew, the CDC guideline from 2016 recommends alternatives to opioids for chronic pain, but in acute care settings, like for post-operative pain, the recommendation is just three days of opioids for pain control and a maximum of five days. How has this guideline impacted opioid use in the emergency room? Well, many ERs are starting to limit outpatient prescriptions to three days if an opioid is given. And once again, we still try to avoid the opioids if we can control it with a non-opioid therapy. But if someone does need it, to aim for three days. Uh, My group in particular is about to issue uh, guidelines to all of our physicians, and we're going to be aiming for three days. Is that going to be enough? In some conditions, but if it's a a weekend or a holiday, certainly if they need five days of therapy until they get in to see the orthopedist, that's perfectly reasonable. Okay. Now, pain doesn't always stop after patients leave the emergency room. That ankle sprain or fracture, for example, hurts several days later. The problem of ER bounce backs, that is, return visits to the ER after discharge, are often caused by inadequately treated pain. Are you seeing more of these bounce backs because ER docs are more hesitant to prescribe opioids due to the opioid scare? No, we're really not because we're getting much better at doing additional therapies, um, additional to opioids or alternatives to opioids. So the sprain, for example, mm-hmm. um, if we if a patient is given Tylenol and ibuprofen together, that's actually been clinically shown to be more powerful than 5 and 325 of Percocet or 10 of Oxycodone. Now that's an important fact for all of us to know. We're up for a break. When we come back, we'll ask Dr. Fuller about alternatives to opioids for one of the most painful conditions ever, kidney stones. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Boston Scientific, a leader in microelectric implantable technologies used to treat chronic neuropathic pain. Be sure to look for the exclusive release of Dr. Paul Christo's new book, Aches and Gains. You'll get cutting-edge information on understanding pain, traditional and innovative treatments, and an exciting array of integrative therapies. You'll also get personal accounts of celebrities in their battle to overcome pain. Get your copy on Amazon, and remember no one is immune to pain, but together we can overcome it. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Drew Fuller, emergency medicine physician and chief safety officer for Alteon Health. Drew, talk to us about alternatives to opioids for kidney stone pain. Probably one of the most painful conditions. In fact, patients that have given natural childbirth um, at one point in their life or had a kidney stone tell me that the kidney stone was far more painful than natural childbirth. Mm-hmm. And great therapies for kidney stone pain can be IV lidocaine and IV Ketorolac, which is like an IV form of ibuprofen. Yeah. Those two therapies alone 
uh, have substantially reduced the need to use any narcotics for someone coming with kidney stone pain. The brand name for Ketorolac that people may be more aware of is Toradol. Are there other approaches to the intravenous route for pain control? For example, intranasal routes. Not rectal routes, but people are using nasal routes more often. In fact, I was at a meeting today where they were talking about using intranasal lidocaine for headaches. Exactly. Now let's talk about another drug called ketamine. Oh, great medicine. It's a drug that we use in anesthesiology and even one that we use now post-operatively for pain control. It's potentially one of the most useful ER pain relievers. It's unique in its ability to reduce pain while not suppressing breathing or lowering blood pressure or heart rate. And in fact, there have been studies showing that low-dose ketamine is effective and safe for pain in the ER. Have you seen this drug being used? Greatly underused, but gaining traction rapidly. And in fact, you hear about ketamine every time we go to a national conference, there's more uses of ketamine being mm-hmm. promoted. Right. Certain states have been inhibited um, from it from a perception of risk. And uh, Maryland, where I practice, the uh, the nursing board had years ago um, put some restrictions on nursing administering ketamine. But we're getting over that and we're moving forward. That's good. You know, studies show that it's safe and effective for conditions like fractures or dislocations or sickle cell crises, for example, even uh, musculoskeletal pain and back pain. And I also feel like it can be quite helpful for patients who are tolerant to opioids who need pain relief in the emergency room, like sickle cell patients who are often on opioids at home. Yeah, and we're, and we're looking for, my hospital is just about to implement it starting next month. And mm-hmm. we're educating our physicians and our nurses on the options. And I'm, I'm part of a large group of emergency departments. And the advantage of there is we get to share best practices. And several of our other hospitals have used it with great success. That sounds great. You know, Drew, there's evidence that pediatric and geriatric patients are undertreated for pain. Why is this happening in the ER? I think we get scared from them. We know with their geriatric populations, they're more sensitive for these medications, especially opioids. And so people may be more cautious. Absolutely. And these are circumstances where ketamine and nitrous oxide could be used instead. ED doctors have to make difficult judgment calls every day about whether a patient has legitimate pain or whether the patient is seeking opioids for the euphoric effect. How do you sort that out? Well, you do start to understand patterns over time, but you want to be careful with your own bias. Mm -hmm. If a patient is new, not been in the system, and and I think 49 out of the 50 states have drug monitoring programs where the doctor can go online and look, you really do have to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I'd much rather err on the side of providing an opioid than not providing it if they really needed it. I agree. Any interest in doing nerve blocks for pain relief in the emergency room for dental pain or for knee pain or even if a patient fractures his or her leg? A very strong interest and that's being advanced, especially with the use of ultrasounds in Mm -hmm. emergency departments is becoming more and more common. Anything else? Some people are using topical therapy and plegettes. Mm -hmm. In fact, we get lidocaine and benzocaine and some Benadryl and a a cotton swab plegette has been shown to show some benefit. Uh Uh, That's geriatric populations with a hip fracture. It's being proposed to be a, a therapy that controls it's extreme pain right there. Right. And here you have this very fragile population. Do you really want to give IV narcotics?
narcotics in that fragile population. I think that regional anesthesia, that is nerve blocks in the ER, have great potential. And then finally, Drew, in this era of opioid-related deaths, have you seen many patients complain that you're not using opioids for their pain? We see a a complaint here and there, um, to be frank and authentic about it all, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's been embraced by the community and by our patients. And as long as we're helping them and giving them alternatives, I think they appreciate that. And then the other thing that we're starting to learn, and we're learning this from our managing expectations, and what is an acceptable level of discomfort, because there are pros and cons with all these therapies. Very true. Dr. Fuller, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you, Dr. Christo. And thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and this is Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.